0: You're listening to On The Verge, a podcast about solving the security risks of the 21st century, produced by the Council on Strategic Risks. Tune in for expert interviews about some of today's most pressing existential problems, including climate change, global pandemics, bioweapons, and nuclear proliferation. We'll discuss some of the major challenges and outline potential solutions for preventing worst-case scenarios. At the Council on Strategic Risks, we believe that we are on the verge of a better tomorrow. Hey everyone, welcome to On the Verge. My name is Natasha Bajma. I am the director of the Converging Risks Lab at the Council on Strategic Risks. I'm pleased to moderate a series of discussions about ecological security issues between Dr. Rod Schoonover. He's our head of the Ecological Security Program here at CSR and various subject matter experts over the next several months. CSR expanded its ecological security program in the fall of 2021 with the help of a grant from the VCon Rasmussen Foundation. It represents our latest effort to expand concepts of national security. If you're interested in learning more, please be sure to check out our landmark report, The Security That Binds Us. We'll provide a link in the show notes. Let's turn to our interview. Hey everyone, welcome back to On The Verge. Joining us today is Dr. Charles Barber, who is the Director of the Forest Legality Initiative and Senior Biodiversity Advisor at the World Resources Institute, WRI in Washington, DC. Prior to WRI, he served as Forest Chief in the Bureau of Oceans and International Environmental and Scientific Affairs at the US Department of State and as Environment Advisor at the US Agency for International Development. He received his PhD in jurisprudence and social policy from the University of California at Berkeley. We also have Dr. Rod Schoonover who heads our ecological security program at the Council on Strategic Risks. Before coming to CSR, he served for a decade in the US intelligence community, first at the State Department's Bureau of Intelligence and Research, and then later at the National Intelligence Council, working on national security and foreign policy implications of environmental and ecological change. So glad to have you both with us today.
1: Thanks for having us. Great, great, great to be here. Thank
2: you
0: so much. Today, we want to have a robust discussion about forest integrity, forestry crimes, as well as other ecological security issues. But before that, Chip, I'm wondering if you can share with our listeners what drew you to working on forest issues in the first place?
2: Sure. That's rather uh... a. <laughs> somewhat interesting story so long ago in the last century i was an undergraduate at the university of massachusetts and i was studying law and i kind of decided i wanted to be a cross between like supreme court justice oliver wendell holmes and sherlock holmes would catch the worst bad guys and then sort of philosophize about the nature of law and justice you know it's kind of young and silly but and and i got into that phd program at the university of california at berkeley as you mentioned um studying law social science and philosophy but before i headed to california i took a gap year as a backpacker and i traveled through most of south and southeast asia for about nine months so fell in love with the tropical forest and with that part of the world indonesia in particular where I, where I where i went on to live when i got to berkeley i tried to put these two things together thinking about rainforests and thinking about law and politics ended up doing my phd dissertation research in indonesia on the political economy of of uh, forest issues during the uh, previous, uh, the authoritarian regime there under Suharto and working some with Ford Foundation and the World Bank. I got back to the United States after three years and I joined my first time around at World Resources Institute and got put put to work working on the Earth Summit and the Convention on Biodiversity which WRI was quite involved in. Ended up some years later at AID and doing forests as Forest Division Chief of the State Department. That's where Rod and I first met. And now I'm back at WRI since 2014, still on forest issues, and as as we'll talk about later, still trying to catch bad guys. So what goes around comes around, I guess.
0: Moving on to the issues at hand, Uh, the Council on Strategic Risks is a national (laughs) security-focused think tank, and we are trying to reshape national security to better capture threats emerging in the coming decades, including environmental security, ecological security, and many others, Although environmental security has been around for a while, the field has tended to focus on climate change, water and the like, while forests have historically been discussed much less in a security context. In your view, why have topics like deforestation and illegal logging been comparatively absent from our typical security discussions?
2: That's an interesting question. Um, I think you're right. I think it's because the links between forests and security issues are a bit more indirect than they are perhaps with things like the impacts of climate change, at least migration and things, water resource scarcity, as many conflicts about that, or at least they were perceived that way back in the 90s when the whole focus of the environment and security linkages began to become something that was getting more attention. There was that period, and I'm I'm sure you're familiar with this, between the end of the Cold War and before 9-11 where all these non-traditional security issues suddenly got a lot of attention. Um, And it was, you know, in that period. And around that time, I was enlisted by uh, Thomas Homer Dixon, who you probably know, um, who's done a lot of this work. And he asked me to write a study on the relationship between forest resource scarcity and conflict in Indonesia, which was part of a larger project he was working on. And um, so World Resources Institute was happy to let me do that, but they didn't think it was sufficiently interesting to be published as a WRI study. He said, yeah, sure, go off and do that. He's paying for it. But now nah, that's not that much of an issue. So they were pretty surprised, as was I, when I, I, it got more attention than anything I ever wrote and getting asked to come over and brief the CIA and the Pentagon I got flown out to the Aspen Institute, talked to a bunch of senior diplomats about it. And so, you know, that was their loss, I guess. But it was, it was an issue that, that, that got a lot of attention at that time. I think these days, the links between deforestation and climate change in particular are now so clear and you've had issues since starting, at least with Liberia in the early 2000s, about blood timber and Cambodia, and you know a number of countries where you've seen clear connections between illegal logging and land grabbing in forest areas in Burma. You've you've seen that, so I think it's it's a lot uh, more appreciated now. And I have to say that your work on this stuff, I think, has contributed a lot to that, that to actually drawing these links and making people on the security side actually think about these issues as core security issues and not just issues of crime or issues of, you know, you know, environmental degradation.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I, um, I, I, I think chip's answers were uh, outstanding. I think one of the things that has risen in importance inside of the security community is really a, a, a deeper look at political instability. And I think the interaction with illegal forest activities which would include illegal logging uh arise from a whole host of things that contribute to political instability uh poor governance corruption um inequity uh and then inputs into uh food security and and, uh and shelter insecurity I, i think this is a an area that actually, you know, we have established some tentative links uh, between forest degradation and, and political instability. And I think it has uh, a lot of overlap between violence, uh, especially violence in enforested um, regions in which there's a history of corruption and, and grievance. And I think there's quite a, a bit of scholarly work yet to be done uh, on forest integrity and, and stability.
0: You know, it's interesting, um, Chip, you said that because of its indirect nature, it has a lot less focus, uh, but at the end of the day, if we don't have a home to live in, a world to live in, um, everything else crumbles underneath that. So let's turn to um, illegal logging. What makes some forms of logging illegal and what is its scale globally?
2: Yeah, that's a, an interesting question. Um, you know, obviously, there's lots of logging going on in the world, which is perfectly legal in trade and forest products. But there's a lot of illegal logging and not only logging for timber, but then you know clearing of, of forest areas and their conversion. Often these things are linked up for industrial agriculture. We see a lot of that these days with things like palm oil and soybeans and cattle. But generally, illegal logging refers to the cutting and sale and trade of timber that's cut in violation of of applicable laws, local, national, or international. Um, And when we talk about illegal deforestation, it's basically often has a little more up screen, has to do with the the, um, acquisition of land, you know, questionable land titles and, you know, and things like that. And for people trying to convert natural forests into non-forest uses. And as I said, often these things go sequentially you'll have illegal logging will open an area up and they'll get burning and smallholders moving in and someone comes in and does some fancy footwork on the paperwork, takes it over and voila, you have a cattle ranch or a palm oil plantation. Um, the global scale of illegal logging is very difficult to estimate very accurately. When you, if you ever hear specific percentages, you should be suspicious. Because you know, people will say you know, for 90% of the timber in Brazil is illegal, or you know, 80% or 60%. It's a clandestine business. A lot of it's domestic, not an in international trade. It's very hard to tell. But it seems like the proportion in many countries is estimated to be very high, uh, and, and particularly in some of the tropical developing countries like Brazil, Peru, Indonesia, Cambodia, uh, in Burma, and in some countries in the Congo Basin. One way to get an idea of the scale is you know the UN Office on Drugs and Crime, UNODC, did a World Wildlife Crime Reports every four years. And the 2020 report um, has figures on the value of seized illegal rosewood species. Not, not all timber at all, just rosewood species, because they're mainly CITES listed. Um, and the value of all those rosewood seizures exceeded the value of all the seized illegal ivory, rhino horn, pangolin scales, birds, and, and, and coral reef species combined right so it's uh it's it's big business and you see you also see a lot of convergence where you have um often you know ivory will be stuck into shipments of timber and drugs and wood go together and uh you know these things kind of come together those who work in in these sectors i used to work on illegal fisheries on in southeast asia and i was surprised that um in the ivory fish trade the people who we would interview who were trading expensive live reef fish you know into hong kong would say hey you guys interested in um, you know gray electronics you know because the price of fish is down right now and they, you know they weren't fish people they were traders you know they were illegal traders they were just trading clandestine goods and they'd move from thing to thing depending on the prices they had ships that they would you know one month they would be filled up with these fish carrier tanks for live reef fish big big fish like groupers and then the next you know month they'd be carrying you know illegal shipments of textiles from Thailand to Nigeria or something like this, and then they shift to something else. So they shift around a lot like that, you know, as well. So it's a there's a big convergence issue there, I think,
1: you know, the the issue that Chip brings up about, uh, you know, Rosewood in in particular, I think it's particularly eye opening. And when there's money to to be made, uh, especially in a relatively low risk, uh, low punishment activity, um, you know, uh, corruption, which I think is one of the most underappreciated security issues, but very pervasive, uh, especially throughout the wildlife trade. Uh, I think it's really important to underscore this. And, uh, and Rosewood uh, trade, uh, you know, it seems to me to be doing uh, serious damage in parts of Africa, uh, serious damage in other parts of the world since you brought up convergence, this is an issue I worked a lot on in uh, the intelligence community. And so there's been a couple stories, I have a Google alert on illegal logging, and I get I get something every single day. Uh, But there have been stories recently about uh, illegal logging in uh, in Romania, and the violence that has surrounded the so called wood mafia. Um, And that brings up Uh, you know, ties, as you mentioned, to other well established security issues, and, uh, you know, especially transnational organized crime. So I'm wondering how you view the seriousness and scale of, you know, these convergence issues. And is it important to tie it to these other security issues? Or can we look at, you know, timber and illicit timber by itself?
2: Well, on the one hand, as I'm sure you know, you don't want to overblow this and, and, and say, you know, illegal logging is funding terrorists all over the world and things. It, it is in some places, but not in other places. They look, they look for funding and it may come from, you know, all sorts of sources human trafficking, you know, gold mining, uh, you know, all sorts of things, anything that, that will make a buck. But on the other hand, there are some very, you know, clear cases of this. Like the, the charcoal issue in Somalia was one for years with Al-Shabaab there, we had, I remember when I was in the government, um, there was all these issues about Al-Qaeda doing illegal logging on the Pakistan border and selling that stuff, loaded by weapons and supplies and things like that. So, but I think it's more that that's a crime of opportunity. If there weren't any forests there, maybe they would have been doing illegal sand mining or something like that. You know, it's, um, you know, th- th- there's nothing inherent in the in in wood and the timber trade, but it definitely is a problem. And you certainly see this in Eastern Europe. And, it, you know, it's important to make that point that this is not just a problem of the tropical developing countries. We see these things in that part of the world as well. And, um, you know, it's just not as as well publicized and it's not so tied to the sort of big climate change issues and things like that.
1: And it's interesting because I got a lot of questions when I was in the intelligence community about the overlap of the ivory trade with uh, Al-Shabaab when the the charcoal issue was just, uh, you know, obvious and explicit. Um, and at sometimes um, a leading cause of deforestation above illegal logging like harvesting of, of forests for charcoal
2: yeah I mean in Madagascar you also see this it's not so much in legal problem but I remember when I was in Madagascar one time and two interesting stories one was uh, talking to a leading scientist there who deals with forestry and botany and things like that and what identification and she said, you know, the only thing foreigners ever want to talk to us about when they come to Madagascar is lemurs and rosewood. But our biggest problem in this country is really charcoal, because it's the it's the production of charcoal and the lack of a decent energy infrastructure, which is driving the destruction of the dry forests. It's not the tropical rainforest, you know, in the Northeast, which is, in, which is really one of, you know, arguably one of the biggest environmental problems there. And, you know, she said, I wish someone would give us some money to, like, study, like, fast growing eucalyptus species because we've got lots of degraded land and if we if we could produce more stuff to make charcoal out of that would be probably do a lot more than this the other story is being up in the rosewood areas in the northeast the so-called vanilla coast and sitting around as one does with a couple of cops drinking a beer in some small village Mm -hmm. and saying to them so when the rosewood boom was going on a couple years ago who does the logging and the cops just laughed and says well everyone does everyone drops what they're doing farmers kids school teachers cops their buyers are in town everyone goes out you know you know and gets it when the buyers leave when the the chinese traders aren't around no one does because no one needs rosewood it's just not something they use it's too heavy and hard to work and you know it has a cash value but you know so there's a there's a whole sort of broader set of issues it's hard to look at these issues of illegality and corruption and everything without these broader issues of energy food systems trade you know and things like that but you're totally right i mean you know basically these things feed poor governance and corruption corruption feeds them and they fit together and it makes it so hard to do it, to do all the other things that we need to do in the world to make it a better place if you can't get people to you know do the basic things because everyone is in someone's pocket
0: It's fascinating to hear from your perspective about the convergence of these issues with the hard national security issues like terrorism, organized crime. A couple of years ago, I was doing consulting for a company that uses machine learning um, to track things like um, fentanyl trafficking. And I was asked to dig into a lot of data and try to identify were there signals that we weren't necessarily looking for um, that we could inject into a machine learning tool that was kind of identifying patterns. And I found a lot of connections between all illicit trade and the bigger the bigger the operation, the more the connections and the tighter the choke points. Um, so I think this is really an interesting discussion. So turning on to a different issue, you've done a lot of work beyond forests um, to look at biodiversity issues. And in the past um, 2021, 2022 timeframe, We've had uh, some major multilateral conferences, uh, one on climate change and another on biological diversity. The climate change talks in Glasgow drew enormous media attention, but the biodiversity talks, not so much. Of course, the second half of those meetings are yet to come this year. Um, And then we have President Biden bringing together his Secretary of Defense, his Director of National Security early on for the Climate Leaders Summit signaling to the world that the administration views climate change in a security context. So here's the question, do you think that we will one day see a thematically similar ecological security summit given that scientists often point to climate change and ecological disruption as the two major crises facing humanity arising from the natural world?
2: It's another kind of uh, convergence that is is important, I think, along with we talked about the convergence of different types of crime, but Um, Yeah, I think that, I mean, the short answer is yes, that would be a great idea. The question is, how do we get that going? Um, I was at the Glasgow Summit. We partnered with a lot of other organizations to host this extensive Nature Zone set of programs there. I think we had 70 events and we had a whole Nature's Newsroom we did with Eurovision and got an amazing amount of attention um, uh, on that issue for the first time in, in, in the climate Convention context and, you know, seeing the importance of conserving and restoring natural ecosystems, forests in particular, as part of the, the climate solution. And it's true that the, the Biodiversity Convention gets less attention, I think in part because it's it's the impacts of biodiversity loss are more diverse and more difficult to measure. You can't measure biodiversity like you can, you know, there is no 1.5 degrees for biodiversity. You can measure it by you know, different species or endemism or things like that, but it's a, it's a harder thing to get your um, brain around. And I think that's why people have gravitated towards a, sort of a narrative around nature and climate being intertwined. Um, you know, we know forests are, are a big part of, of the solution on climate, but, you know, often they just get treated like sticks of carbon. By the climate negotiators, it's like trees are trees, and like uh, plant a plantation or you know a tropical rainforest, and but that's you know scientifically not really right. It's because you know tropical forests are complex ecosystems. They've got animals and plants and insects and microbes and fungi, and they all work together. And it's it's that kind of ecological integrity of that overall system that makes them such an effective kind of carbon sponge. So it's yeah you know, it's important to plant trees in places where we don't have them anymore, but it's not going to it's you know we, we we really need to focus on conserving and maintaining those big remaining stores of forest, and I think people are beginning to get that. Um, you know, is also another issue that I work on a bit, which is sort of the convergence of issues around zoonotic disease spillover and uh, tropical deforestation and fragmentation and, and 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 the wildlife trade, or more specifically, the you know hunting, consumption, and slaughter of wild birds and mammals in proximity to. To domesticated animals on tropical and subtropical forest frontiers. And more and more, we're seeing, you know, in the 20th century, most of the pandemics were were of that zoonotic origin. And, uh, you know, there's been a lot more evidence just this week about COVID 19 that, yes, it, it looks like it definitely came from that market in Wuhan and from the proximity of certain animal species to human beings and livestock. There's Ebola, you know, you can go on and on about these things. So I think people are beginning to see overall that the climate crisis, the biodiversity crisis, and basically human health and well-being going forward are all kind of part of one problem, and, and the solutions have to fit together. The problem is we do all these international things in these big silos, so the biodiversity negotiators don't want to talk about climate, and climate don't want to talk about biodiversity, and, and the, you know, the, the the health people are totally siloed and say, no, that's not our problem, you know, we have to do, we're already having to deal with vaccines and surveillance and, you know, all that kind of stuff which is important, of course, but we need to bring these things a bit more together. And I think your idea that a summit on ecological security would be an interesting way to bring a lot of these issues together around, you know, development, public health, biodiversity, climate change, ecosystem services, and, and you know, and, you know, and conflict. I mean, there's a lot of interesting things around the whole migration issue from Central America. What are the push factors there that are causing this, basically seen as a political problem and a security problem but really has a lot of roots in you know corruption inequality bad natural resource management resource degradation and that sort of thing i don't know i would be very interested we could talk maybe wri and and your organization could put forward a proposal to to something like this i mean i will say that we talk more now to the national security council about forests and climate than i've ever seen in the past they seem to be the people right now like you know this week most interested in nexus of those issues and are very receptive to these kinds of things as i'm sure you know we'll probably talk to a lot of the same people over there
1: yeah and and you know i think that's a a outstanding answer i'll just say from the national security side uh, i think we ignore uh, things like uh, instability in the biosphere at our own peril and not being able to really gauge uh, the uh, the security challenges and the security evolution that we're seeing develop over the next couple uh, decades, so not only do we I I think we need to bring the security community into greater. um, recognition of you know things that are happening from the natural world that pose threats, in addition to zoonotic disease and. uh, collapse of hosts of ecosystem services.
0: Speaking of uh, powerful alliances, I understand that WRI, Meridian Institute and the Food and Land Use Coalition have joined forces together um, in something that you're calling the Nature Crime Alliance. Could you tell us a little bit about this alliance and who you are aiming to bring into it?
2: Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, So I'm spending a lot of of my time on these days. So this idea of an alliance, which we hope to see formally launched towards the second half of 2022, we're still in the kind of interim and development phase. It it arose out of our longtime cooperation with the Norway International Climate and Forest Initiative, or NICFI, um, which is one of the major catalysts and funders for efforts on forest and climate, REDD+, for at least a decade that had these well known agreements with Indonesia and Brazil and Peru and, and And other countries, and as those efforts began to move towards implementation on the ground in some of these countries, it became clear that all these ideas of pay for performance for reducing emissions from deforestation were just going to fail flat, flatly fail if you didn't deal with systemic forest crime and the associated issues of corruption and things like that. Who's going to invest in the Peruvian Amazon? You know, I wouldn't take five dollars within a thousand miles of there for guaranteed emission reductions in areas where you have rampant, widespread. Problems of this type. So so too as as we began to work with Norway and others in the Food and Land Use Coalition or FOLU, which is simply put, its goal is to figure out how to feed nine billion people without destroying the planet. You know, and this, this involves a lot of things in the food system, agriculture, land use, doing the forests. And as that work sort of progressed, you know, about two or three years ago, became clear that these same issues of nature crime pose a, a similar barrier. To many of these transitions that everyone agrees need to be done if we're going to sustainably feed the world. So, strangely, out of this group of people thinking about food security came this exact same demand of the people thinking about reducing emissions from deforestation. So, Norway proposed to us why don't we come up with this alliance? Actually, this kind of a funny story. The guy who is the head of NICVI and it took a sabbatical for a year to work on the main report of the FOLU alliance uh, said, Will you talk in this paper that you're writing for me about the um, alliance against environmental crime and which is what we called it in the beginning and i looked it up all over the internet and i finally dropped him a note and i said pair i can't find this do you have a reference for this alliance and he said no it's just an idea that i had and i thought you would tell me what it would be (laughs) and he and he basically said you know (laughs) what we want to do and it's still our goal to this day is raised by an order of magnitude the political attention the financing and the capacity and Connecting the dots, kind of thing—the the operational capacity to deal with a set of crimes that directly impact on the environment and associated crimes—and so we, we are trying to create a new kind of, uh, like a new organization, but rather to be, a, you know, a catalyst to connect the dots, to mobilize novel partnerships, incubate ideas, generate new financing, support action on the ground, you know. And so the people we've gotten involved—who's just a really brief tour. So governments are fundamental to this problem. You know, there's no value added in NGOs talking to each other about this problem because they already talk to each other all the time about it. And it's just it, there's no you know it's not needed. There's, there's lots of people work on this, including us through our Forest Legality Initiative. So we need to engage governments. You know, so find you know that's that's and that's tricky because very few governments are pure. You know, and you want to work with some parts of governments, but other parts maybe not so much. And so we have. Along with Norway, enlisted the United States at a political and a technical level is is very supportive of this, and Gabon in in Africa very supportive and has been doing a lot of things. And we're in discussions with a number of other governments, who basically demonstrated leadership on this and are interested, you know, around the world. NGOs, of course, are a key part of the alliance, though, and we've. of talking to a who's who of groups that do a lot of this work here global witness environmental investigation agency wildlife justice commission traffic wildlife conservation society and we'd love you guys to get involved too you know in terms of helping us think this through and so we have a kind of informal advisory group of of those folks who are quite enthusiastic It's our charge in the first year was, does this have any legs? Is there any interest in this? Is this, you know, is it reinventing the wheel? Is it redundant? Is there a need for something like this to happen? And the answer from pretty much everyone has been, yeah, we think it's a great idea. We got to do it the right way. We talked to basically various centers of, you know, um, science and uh, excellence in technologies uh, with the University of Washington folks. You may be familiar with Sam Wasser and his gang and others. And also in areas like remote sensing, where World Resources Institute, you, you know, does a lot—wood identification, wildlife forensics, money laundering, and financial crime—and um, analytical techniques, AI stuff, like you were talking about before. We talked to some of those things. So making sure that we're bringing in the best technologies and figuring out how to scale them, things like that. Um, we talk with the private sector a fair amount. Um, some associations, you know, the big consumer goods firms are willing to talk about these things, and. Um, but also those involved in shipping and ports and logistics, the sort of pinch points side of this whole thing is important. And finally, it's really important to engage in in our view with indigenous people's organizations and other frontline environmental defenders because they're key allies, They're the people that get hurt the most by a lot of this forest crime. But we're also really concerned that our definitions of nature crime and the way that we deal with it are are empowering and defending their rights and are not basically putting them in the position of being criminalized. This has happened. I lived in Indonesia for a long time when, you know, traditional shifting cultivation was considered a crime. So that's not the kind of nature crime that we want to be uh, seeing focused on. We're after the big fish, you know, the, the real systemic things. And so we've been trying very consciously to cultivate work with independent monitors, frontline defenders, indigenous peoples organizations to make sure that we're going to be having their back as well. And I should mention there's a lot more information on this on our, Relatively new website, which is conveniently called naturecrimealliance.org.
1: This sounds uh, like a really useful, important uh, alliance among people who are uh, capable of not only bringing attention to it, but also doing something about it. I think sometimes people wonder whether so called nature crimes uh, are serious. you know, or is this some kind of marketing strategy to, to bring more funding uh to you know to these issues? And I am a firm believer that these are serious, uh, not just in terms of uh inputs to corruption and all the other convergence uh of 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 crime that we've been talking about, but as a, a potential uh constraint on our ability to thrive in the future. One You very, very often hear about nature based solutions as a way to um, adapt to climate change. But you can't rely on nature based solutions if nature is being destroyed uh, by either over consumption or illegal harvesting. And it's I think it's a critically important issue.
2: I think that's exactly right.
0: To close, we would love to ask you a more irreverent question. Uh, What is one thing in your field of expertise that almost no one agrees with you about?
2: One thing that a lot of people don't agree with me about in my own organization and and a lot of the development world where I've worked is I'm kind of uncomfortable with the kind of anthropocentric view that one hears all the time in international policy debates on, on the environment and development that humans must be at the center of development. I don't know, as someone who's done law and stuff like that, that strikes me as a gross conflict of interest for human beings to be saying that that's a a principle. You know, I'm pretty sure that tigers, for instance, to the extent that they think about things like this, probably believe that tigers should be at the center of development and that the life of a tiger is equally valuable to a life of a human. I, I just, I'm pretty sure that that's how they would feel if they could express that, you know, and, um, a lot of people just don't get that. They really think that there's something inherently different and that, you know, even though there's billions and billions of humans and only 200 Sumatran rhinos left that we don't want to inconvenience any, any human beings to keep them from going extinct. And I'm just, there's part of me that feels that that's not really right. And uh, that there's, that, that that's not the way we're going to have long-term coexistence on this planet. If we continue to take that attitude. So, but like I say, that's not, very popular and a lot of people will say well that's just because you're like an old hippie kind of thing but it's um it's i I actually get this much more out of studying like the old philosophers and things like this and thinking from the days when i was reading you know kant and spinoza and people like that and thinking well if you logically apply you know disciplined ways of thinking about ethics and values i just can't come to that position that well i was born a human being so therefore i'm inherently more valuable and better than you know all these other species out there
0: and Rod, uh, is there anything that you have that no one agrees with you about?
1: One thing that I think uh, I'm alone on in the security community is um, I think we talk about the Arctic uh, too much in a security context only because we use that oxygen to not talk about the tropics, uh, especially in terms of if climate change. Yes, there is a, a security d- dimension to. To the uh, thawing of the arctic but where do people live and where do people interact strongly with nature that is in decline it's in the tropics both both marine system and terrestrial systems so i think we undervalue the security dimensions of those changes
0: Well, this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. Thank you to both of you for coming on our podcast.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to On the Verge. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to leave us a review. For more information on the work of the Council on Strategic Risks, please visit us at councilonstrategicrisk.org. Or you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn.